to another episode of Just Jerry Live, Plotting Perspectives in Church Life with Todd Bryant. And Jeff Short. How are you this morning, my friend? Uh, pretty wet. Is it raining up there? Cats and dogs. Well, it just moved up that way from here. We've had enough rain to create a lake near my house. I didn't have a, you know, own the lake kind of property until all this. Now, now it's happened. <laughs> all right. We have been going through Jonathan Ammon's book, The Power of His Reign, subtitled An Easy Introduction to Amillennialism. Obviously, our goal is to get done. We are going to fly through five chapters today, chapters 15 through chapter 19. Chapter 15 is interpreting the book of Revelation. Chapter 16 is Revelation 20 specifically. Chapter 17, Satan bound. Chapter 18, differences with post-millennialism. We probably will not spend a lot of time there. Chapter 19 is really a, a pretty practical chapter just entitled Hasten the Day. So have you read those chapters? I read them this morning. Me too. I am ready to get this behind us. I know we've got a, a plan or two for some other podcasts that we hope to get back in sort of a normal routine. So we want to get this done pretty quickly. All right. So chapter 15 is on interpreting the book of Revelation. It should not come as a surprise to anybody that we are going to view this book differently than uh, our brother, Jonathan Ammon, mainly because our hermeneutic is different. And we've talked about that throughout this entire thing. Is there anything you want to say uh, about the chapter itself? I, I've, I've got a few things highlighted in this chapter and the next, and I, I'm certain we saw some things similarly. You want to take the rain a little bit this time? Well, the start of this chapter was a little... Hmm. I don't know. I guess I can say I just didn't like it. I think he was trying to maybe come up with some sort of a interesting illustration or something to launch into the chapter. But he does that quite a bit uh, where he uses an il illustration. And I, and I know when you're writing a book, sometimes an illustration keeps things interesting. But I do think there was a little bit of inference that he was trying to make. Number one, he's trying to link dispensationalism with John Darby, which I think is often an unfair charge waged against premillennialism. Not, not to mention bringing in of people from other nations is obviously trying to spread the kingdom, quote unquote, worldwide right now. I think he did have some reason for using a particular illustration. Yeah, I think he did. It's, you know, the mention of Darby, it's a little bit of a, I don't know if red herring is the right word, but I mean, if the argument that he wants to make is that there are some really nutty ideas out there about the end times, then that's fine. And I will agree with him and say yes and amen. Um, and they're all there are not some very, by the way. Either. Yeah, they're, yeah, uh, premillennialists do not have a monopoly on nutty ideas. You know, I, I wish he would just, you know, stick with this topic and just leave that stuff off, but. That's just sort of uh, maybe an editorial note I would like to turn in. <laughs> well, he gets right into it uh, about the third paragraph after that little short introduction, that uh, illustration, I should say. And well, he, hold there, on just a second. And he, so this is on page 82. So this is, I'm guessing you're getting ready to jump into his subheading. It says warfare. But right before that, 
He says, Revelation is explicitly about Jesus. It reveals the truth about the end times. But the book of Revelation claims that it reveals Christ, not the apocalypse. Now, I'm just confused by that statement because isn't the Greek word for revelation apocalypsis or something like that? I mean, so that's that statement just seems nonsensical. What is he trying to say there? Well, he's just it's it's a deceptive statement in in a sense or a leading statement. Maybe I should say deceptive may be a little bit strong, but he's trying to say this is just like every other book. It's a Christ centered book. And so there's nothing else in it except Christ. Well, I do believe that Revelation is definitely a Christ-centered book. He's at the beginning, the middle, and the end. He is the subject of all Scripture. But to say that it is not about future things, well, he does say it reveals the truth about the end times, but not the apocalypse is double talk almost, because he's saying it reveals the truth about the end times, but not about the you know the revealing of Jesus Christ, which is what apocalypse actually means. Right. Not to mention, uh, you know, the text itself says he's got God has given this to show his servants, Jesus's servants, the things which must soon take place. And even at the end of chapter one, Jesus tells John, write the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And if you go through the book of Revelation, obviously you're going to continually see it talk about things that are going to take place after this. Chapter 4, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And later in the book, it says these are the things that must take place. So, yes, it's a Christ-centered book, but it is about the apocalypse. And, again, that's clear from the Greek title there. And you notice right. it, what, what is what is a little bit confusing is if you back up one paragraph, here's a sentence that he wrote. Interpreters agree that it is highly apocalyptic and symbolic. And then the next paragraph says it's not about the apocalypse. So those those two sentences contradict one another. And I do think that's leading language, by the way. It's highly symbolic. He's basically trying to tell people you can't understand it without somebody that understands the symbols explaining it to you. Right. Which, you know, was a problem in the, in the church during the, the dark ages when, you know, the churches, not the church, but institutions that called themselves the church told people that it took a priest to explain God's word to you that the average person could not understand it themselves. Right. So he gets into this warfare and, you know, he, he, he says the best thing we can do, by the way, is just look at the big picture of Revelation. And then in this very first section, he starts breaking it down. Satan counterfeits a beast in his image. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to empower his church. Satan counterfeits a false prophet to work miraculous signs to deceive the church. By the way, the word church is last used in Revelation chapter 3, and then not used again until the very end of the book. Church is not used in any of these places that he's saying church. Right. My point is he's not looking at the big picture. And then he makes a a really odd statement, I thought, under interpretation, which, again, we've disagreed with his hermeneutic regularly. But he says, I like to say that I am a partial preterist, and uh, kudos to you because you've said that many times throughout this podcast. But he admits it. I am a partial preterist, partial historicist, partial futurist, and an idealist. He goes on to say that's a bit of a joke, but 
this is not the place for a, a joke per se, but I think he is saying that he believes he is all of those things. And I think that actually, I think he's right about that because as you read these chapters, there's a little bit of uh, eschatological schizophrenia. There is a better way to put it. And, and can I say I, again, I've got some amillennial friends, and I, I've never gotten into this type of detail with them. But just in some of the general things that we've talked about, they are not this all over the place. He is all over the place. He he says that 70 A.D. is some bit of a fulfillment of the book of Revelation. The, the, the problem is the book of Revelation was written around the year 95. So uh, right. 70 A.D. was not a fulfillment. And that's not my words that are saying that. There are numerous quotes from men in the early church, church fathers, who actually knew the Apostle John, and they say that this book was written in the late years of Domitian's reign, around the year 95 A.D. So there's just no way that it was written early enough for 70 full, you know, to fulfill it. That's just not that's just not the case. Now he goes on to say that he does believe that there is future fulfillment as well. But I'm just going to argue that the 70 A.D. part is incorrect. All right. So he says Revelation describes a pattern of spiritual warfare through history. And he's going to continue to sort of go back and forth on this. But the problem is, is that that's not what the book of Revelation is describing. And he's going to talk about you know, the church and or churches or what have you facing tribulation. Well, tribulation as a general term, meaning, you know, just referring to trouble or suffering or what have you, persecution, that's all fine. But when we talk about the tribulation, as in the book of Revelation, we're talking about a time of God's wrath being poured out upon this earth, not though, yes, Satan will be active, which is interesting because he says here Satan is warring against God's church, and yet in just a little while he's going to try to convince us that Satan is bound. But, yes, Satan is active, uh, no doubt, but there is a pouring out and a revealing of God's wrath from heaven during this time of tribulation um, that we usually talk about. And so there's a little bit of a it's almost like obfuscation, but he's using terms, and he knows the difference. I mean, he, he claims he used to be pre-trib and pre-mill and all that, so he should know the difference in those terms, which means he should be giving an explanation of that, but he's just not. He's just acting like, oh, well, the Revelation just describes, you know, general tribulation, and, you know, you see people referring to persecution, you know, the, the martyrdom of Christians at different places in the world and at different times in history. And that's just as if that's all that the book of Revelation talks about. And it's that's just not true. Well, and, you know, he fails to see that even Jesus in Matthew 24, and we certainly don't have time to exposit all of Matthew 24. It's, it's hard. It's it's not easy. But this part is simple enough. Jesus sees that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, was even future in Jesus's day. And I, I know some right. try to say that it was fulfilled there in the days of Daniel, but it, or, or between the the years of the Old Testament and the New Testament, but Jesus clearly says that it's future, and he goes on to say that at that time, Matthew twenty four twenty one, for then there will be great tribulation, 
such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for right. the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So there is a time of tribulation that is unlike any other time. It's not general in that sense. And so... Right. Yeah, and that's also have, consistent with the Old Testament prophecies about that time frame as well. Can, and, and since you bring that up, has he quoted anything from the Old Testament in this entire book? Uh, unless I missed it, I have not seen a single quotation of the Old Testament. That is so, I, I don't know what word, irresponsible is the word I want to use, but there is so much prophecy in the Old Testament relative to the Messianic Kingdom, the Day of the Lord, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, that there's just no way to completely take and toss it. And right. he is just not dealing with it. I mean, clearly the Old Testament talks about a time when the, the nation of Israel will be the center of the world's religion. Jesus will be sitting on the throne, or should I say the Messiah will be sitting on the throne People will be living at long ages. Children can go to play with a snake's den or lead a lion around. That obviously different than what we're seeing today. Right. And I think he's going to explain, by the way, this idealistic view that you spoke about, these patterns of spiritual warfare. He's going to explain that. And I, I think I've mentioned that has caught on. I've actually listened to some sermons explaining idealism because we are in the book of Revelation here. And I wanted to at least research that. I just found it to be a little bit confusing and really easily disproven. And I, not, and by the way, not every amillennialist holds to this idealistic view. Uh, some see the book of Revelation more as a historicist view from the days of Jesus's ascension until, you know, the day that he returned. So not all amillennialists view it the way that he does. Right. He ends this chapter by saying that the book of Revelation does not unfold in chronological order. Now listen, I'll freely admit there are a couple of parenthesis chapters there. I mean, the right. ceiling of 144,000, the, the chapter on the two witnesses, those are definitely parenthesis chapters, but there's no way, beginning with the seven seal scroll that you're introduced to in Revelation chapter 5, then the opening chronologically of one seal after the other. The first seal was open. The second seal was open. You get down to the seventh seal. Then there are seven trumpets revealed, and they are blown in chronological order throughout the next several chapters. Then you're introduced to seven bowls, and they are opened chronologically, bowl after bowl after bowl. There's just no way that there is not chronology to that book. It, it, everything ultimately is based on that seven seal scroll that we are introduced to in chapter five throughout the rest of the book. It is chronological. Oh, it's abs absolutely it's chronological. And there's no way that the I, I hesitate to use his own term, but then there's no way that the clear and simple meaning isn't that it's chronological. Obviously, it is. Well, and he tries to give an example of this with Revelation 19 and 20, and he's trying to say that those two chapters just say the same things, and it's not a sequence. Of course, you know, we have to remember that, first of all, the chapter divisions and verse numbers are not part of the inspiration of Scripture. But nevertheless, when you read 19 into 20, you can see that it's a continuing sequence. I mean, just any sort of a 
natural interpretation, you know, grammatical historical interpretation of the text is going to see that it's a, it's just a sequence of events that that are that's continuing to unfold. It is clearly that way, and I mean because you have Jesus return to Earth in Revelation chapter 19, and then in chapter 20 you have Jesus reigning on the Earth with his saints. That is chronological, and it, it runs through that entire chapter. And uh, obviously, he's he just has to ignore statements like when the thousand years are ended. You know, th- those are right. clearly talking about chronology there. But, you know, uh, he's obviously got a, a view to to defend. And so I understand that to a degree. I, I, I will say this. He has continued to say we need to take the simple, easy passages in Scripture and and interpret everything else by those simple, easy passages of Scripture. The problem is, is when he gets to a pretty straightforward passage of Scripture that says something differently than what he wants it to say, he reinterprets it to say something else. Right. And I, I you know, I, I think he clearly does that in Revelation chapter 20. Now, I am again saying I do not believe you should start talking prophecy in Revelation chapter 20. But the, the earliest he ever talks about prophecy in this book is the Gospels. And I think you need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Right. Jesus is going to do what Adam was commissioned to do but never did. Jesus right. is the new and better Adam. He is the greater Adam. He is the second Adam. Adam was supposed to have dominion on this physical earth and reign, and he lost it because of the fall. And Ammon simply does not have Jesus doing what Adam did not do. And that's something that I think premillennialism is a lot more consistent about, that Jesus is going to do what Adam didn't do. And I I think Revelation 20 is just explaining that. And that is an important point because really the amillennial scheme has – you know, Jesus reigning in heaven now, somehow, over his kingdom. But, and then I think he says, he says something in one of these chapters about, you know, he does believe that Jesus will reign on the earth, but it's going to be the new heavens and new earth. You know, in other words, it's going to be the eternal ages. So, all millennialism never has any time where Jesus succeeds on this earth where Adam failed. They just never have that time. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. Uh, he does mention that looking at Revelation from different vantage points there, which, again, is that idealistic view of Revelation, not a chronological view. All right, let's 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 get on into chapter 20 real quickly. I, I don't think that we're going to have to go in depth in this chapter very much because we've already talked about it quite a bit. He He continues to say that Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 are describing the same events. They're just looking at them from different vantage points. And I I would just say the natural flow of that passage or or those chapters, as you pointed out, there are no chapter breaks in the original, but the natural flow of that passage is just simply not the case. They are chronological, and one does, in fact, follow the other. Again, Jesus returns to the earth in Revelation 19, rules on the earth in Revelation 20. Those aren't talking about the same thing. Right. Yeah. They say entirely different things. And he says, you know, the same thing I've heard guys say before, where Satan is a spiritual being that cannot be bound with a physical chain in a physical pit. 
And that sounds good and, and convincing, I suppose, to somebody that hasn't taken 90 seconds, as Bodie Bauckham always talks about, 90-second rule. But take 90 seconds and just think about this. First of all, God can create a spiritual chain to bind a spiritual being with, no problem. In fact, I'd make the argument God could create a physical chain to bind a spiritual being with. But when Jesus goes to the demoniac, what, do the, what does that legion beg Jesus not to cast them into? The abyss. Right. The pit. G, Satan is the leader of the demonic forces, but he's still just a fallen angel at the end of the day. And if they could be cast into the abyss, then, then Satan himself can be cast there. Yeah, and apparently they really did not want to go into any sort of symbolic abyss. No, that's, that's so obvious to me. Right. Uh, and I think most of our listeners are familiar with that story, that passage of Scripture. And he goes on, and because he believes he's proven that, says, therefore, the thousand years is clearly symbolic, which I'm going to say it's it's odd to me, again, that 1,000 years is symbolic of at least 2,000 years so far. Right. But it's that whether or not the chain that is mentioned is literally like a logging chain or something else that actually is just not the point. He's focusing on that to draw attention away from the larger point, and that is of Satan being bound. He is sh- he is shut up and sealed and bound. His activity is not just limited. His activity is curtailed. Um, that is what we're told in those first few verses in Revelation chapter 20. And, of course, he's going to do the typical contortionist-type tricks to try to show how that Satan is bound in such a way that he is still somehow waging warfare continually on the church, as he put it earlier. Well, yeah, his point is that Satan is only bound in that the nations are disallowed from attacking the church on any in any global way. That's what he says. Uh, and he says that's clear and simple. But the problem is, I guess anything becomes clear and simple when you add it to the text. Here's what the text says. The angel threw him, Satan, into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That's all it says. It doesn't say anything about he wouldn't deceive the nations into attacking the church globally. It says he would not deceive the nations. Right. Period. That's the end of the statement. You just can't throw anything in there. I mean, he is yet, adding you that. Know, Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 4 talks about when he has preached the gospel, that if that gospel has been hidden, in the, if it's not you know, been manifest to people, it's not because he's hiding it. He's making it manifest in preaching. But the reason why is he says the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds, lest the light of the gospel should penetrate. So I I just, I've never been able to understand how that Satan supposedly, and and if we follow his scheme here, since the crucifixion, Satan has been bound and not allowed to deceive the nations and will be that way until the return. So, so for 2000 years, somehow that has been the case. And And I've just never been able to understand that. And, and history tells us that that has simply not been the case. Christians and churches have been under major persecution and, by the way, are under major persecution today Absolutely. in certain places. 
Well, and then he references, you know, Matthew 12, where Jesus is talking about the casting out of demons and the accusation that Jesus is casting out demons by, you know, the power of Satan. But Jesus says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. First of all, Jesus' argument is it's proof that he's king because he has power over Satan. That's one of the points right. that Jesus is making. But yeah, it's, it's a proof of his messiahship. Absolutely. Secondly, he is not saying that Satan is bound in the way that Revelation 20 is speaking about. He's simply saying that he has the power to take a demon out of a body and cast it out because he's more powerful than that body. This is about right. This is about casting out demons. It is not about the millennium, uh, the thousand-year reign. It's not about that at all. And he, that is just completely ripping that passage out of context. And nobody would ever come to that conclusion unless somebody pointed them to that. Right. So I, I just. That's that's just the wrong, and I, again, I, that's just the wrong way to approach that. That's a bad hermeneutic. He goes on and says, scholars debate the meaning of the first resurrection, but the Bible's previous teaching about the resurrection and the second coming instruct us that this is not a physical resurrection that occurs at the end of time, but a spiritual resurrection. And he goes on and says, we know that the saints rule with Christ now talking about here on earth, and and those that have died as well. That's part right. of the theme. Except the, the problem is it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Either both of those are spiritual or both of those are physical. But you can't make one spiritual and the other physical unless you've got a theory to prove, of course. Well, what, what is said about one group is said about the other group in inverse. Absolutely. It's the exact same thing is Ab- being said. Absolutely. So this is either both physical or both spiritual. The uh, concept of spiritual resurrection is one that he just imported right there. Like that, that is not taught in the Bible anywhere. And even the, you know, the Greek word anastasis never, uh, you know, it, it never has any idea of this spiritual resurrection. Now, typically the argument that is made is that, well, it does here. You know, it hasn't nowhere else in the New Testament, well, but it does here. Typically the way that that's argued, it's not proven how that it does. I mean, nothing, there's nothing contextually that would demand it. You know, that's, it means, you know, raised to life from the dead. Absolutely. Uh, and it is talking about physical body, physical death, raised to life from the dead. Yeah. So whatever is said about one group, yeah, is, is said about the other. Absolutely. He goes on in this chapter and again reiterates what he has to say about Satan and being bound from deceiving the nations and attacking the church. But then he says, this, when Satan is finally loosed, when he is released, this will result in a final battle, which has popularly become known as the Battle of Armageddon. So he does believe there is going to be a Battle of Armageddon in the future. Satan will deceive the nations and bring about a rebellion against the church. I'm going to argue again that the word church is not anywhere within six chapters of what he's saying there. Right. But nevertheless, 
am I wrong to say that he does not believe in the imminent coming of Christ? That he believes that there is still yet a future coming of the battle of Armageddon. We should not be looking for Jesus right now. We should be looking for this battle of Armageddon. He has tried to say both things. Uh, he has tried to say that he believes in an imminent coming. But then on the other hand, he has this, it's, you know, Satan's got to be loosed before Christ returns, which again is not at all what Revelation 19 and 20 says. But in his system, you know, that has to happen in order for this battle of Armageddon to take place that he's referring to, which is just not the battle of Armageddon in the old Testament, but um, that's what he's calling it. Well, this, this does at least put him in that category of being a pessimistic amillennialist, I would suppose where the op right. optimistic amillennialist, I would think would believe in an imminent coming of Christ, you know, that could occur at any moment where the pessimistic amillennialist believes that no, Jesus is not going to return until this happens, and that is the Battle of Armageddon. Right. We could rehash the rest of this chapter, but there's just more of the same, and we're sort of we're sort of running out of time. Uh, it is funny, I thought, on page 91 that he said it seems complex, but it's actually very simple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will admit it does seem very complex for something that is actually very simple. That is for right. sure. Did you have anything else on that chapter? No, then, you know, as you go into chapter 17, which is sort of a supplemental chapter talking about Satan being bound. I don't know if, if we really have much to say other than it's just more of the same. And, and really what he does in that chapter is just he just tries to pile on some proof texts to support what he's saying. And, you know, he, he talks about whenever he mentioned Satan been bound, you know, that's always the hardest thing to explain. And, and then he goes on to give his further explanation, which still doesn't explain it. So I, I guess maybe that's, that's the key. Uh, you know, it, it has to be incomprehensible and then, and then you've got it. Yeah, absolutely. And he continues to use, you know, that chapter in Matthew uh, as well, where Jesus is talking about healing and, and casting out demons. He's not talking about anything else. Of course, he has several other verses that he quotes here as well. He says Satan has no rights or authority on the earth. It is odd that Paul seemed to misunderstand that when he called him the God of this world. Right. Uh, you know, Jesus even said that when the gospel is preached, Satan comes and snatches the word out of people's hearts lest they believed and be saved. So you know, there, there is some confusion there. Which is odd because he uses the parable of the sower to try to prove his amillennial scheme, but, you know, it has, it has Satan deceiving people in that, you know, in that parable. So. Absolutely. I don't know how that works. Absolutely. Uh, now here's, here's something on page 96 that confused me just a little bit before we jump into the next couple chapters or, or really the last chapter. Even before the cross, Jesus made his authority apparent. His name on the lips of the disciples was enough to drive out demons from their unauthorized place in creation. Demons are now subject to believers in the name and authority of Christ. Now, several things that I've got a problem with here. First of all, he actually has backed up the power of the kingdom now before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which earlier right. he had it beginning at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But secondly, that's just a purely Pentecostal idea that demons are now subject to believers in the name and authority of Christ. I'm just going to disagree with that. And he continues to be all over the place because at one point he said Satan was bound at the cross, and now 
you've got him having to be bound before the cross. Absolutely. Um, you know, during the ministry of Christ. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know which it is. Well, and then he ends the chapter, you know, we've already won and are taking back the earth. But then he talks about, but at the end, Satan's going to take it back again and the battle of Armageddon's going to ensue and Satan still rules people's lives. And it's just really confusing for something that is as simple as he talks about. Yeah. He's, uh, he seems to be in, in danger of becoming post mill, but he, he wants to just pull back at the last second and, and not be post mill. Absolutely. All right. Chapter 18, differences with postmillennialism. I, I really agree with what he's saying relative to postmillennialism. I disagree with the way he approaches some of these passages, especially his idea that the kingdom being at hand meant that it was enacted rather than near. I think he's wrong about that. Well, let's take a look here just uh, page 100. He says, amillennialism teaches that Christ is reigning right now and that the millennial reign is right now. Christ has been reigning since his kingdom proclamation that the kingdom was at hand in his ministry. So now he's backing up even further. Absolutely. Amillennialism asserts that Satan is bound right now and that we are plundering his house. The amillennialists are not waiting for a certain measure of success for the millennial reign to start or looking forward to a time when the church includes the majority of the earth's population. Amillennialists believe we are in the millennial reign. We are in the reign of Christ as he reigns in people's hearts through the gospel. Absolutely. And can so I, I certainly agree that that is what amillennialism believes and teaches. Uh, what I disagree about is that that's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible never says Jesus is reigning in the hearts and lives of his people. It just doesn't. Or that, or that that is his kingdom. No. It, it does not. And every time I've asked about that, I get shot over there to Luke where Jesus tells the Pharisees that the kingdom is in the midst of you. And I'm just going to make the argument that we're all going to agree that in no way were the Pharisees part of the kingdom. Amil, premil, preterist or whatever. They were lost. So you can't, you cannot take that to be about the kingdom being inside someone. That's just a terror. And that's the only passage I've ever had somebody point me to there. And, right. And, and then, you know, the, the, this chapter on post-millennialism, you know, there's just not really probably a lot we need to say about it. By the way, let me just, just a sub point here. Let me apologize for the dogs barking in the background. Apparently, uh, a police car came by and every dog in the neighborhood got a little bit excited and started uh, barking there. There's not a thing yeah, in the world I could do about it. That's tribulation right outside your window right there. Well, it was to those dogs. It was hurting their ears. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's so odd to me on page 103, he says persecution of the church existed in the first century and will exist throughout history until the end, well, I completely agree with that statement. The problem is that statement goes against his idea of the way that Satan is currently bound. Right. Satan is supposedly bound from deceiving the nations, from persecuting the church, and and attacking the church on a global sense, and yet he's saying here that that is what happens, you know. And he goes down to talk about postmillennialism holding a partial preterist view of the book of Revelation, but he earlier admitted that he too held a partial preterist view of the book of Revelation. So I don't know. It's very confusing last few chapters for me. The final chapter is just a practical chapter, and though I, I disagree with his idea that we are, you know, entering the kingdom that will ever be during this life, 
he says, prepare to enter the kingdom through tribulations, which sounds like a, a an idea that the kingdom is future, which <laughs> is confusing to me again. But nevertheless, it really is a gospel presentation of how we need to be warning people about the coming of Christ and telling them that Jesus is the way to escape God's wrath. And I certainly appreciate the fact that he did at least bring it back around to a gospel-centered presentation. Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, there was obviously aspects, you know, he makes the statement, Christ is coming soon. Then he says, today is the day to plunder Satan's house and set the captives free, which you know, we are never told to plunder the house of Satan or uh, anything like that, or that that is anything that believers do. But I was a little confused by his use of Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 12 in the hasting of the day, where he seems to be saying that it's our efforts that are bringing the return of Christ, rather than what Peter means, which is obviously that we're looking forward to it with earnest desire and eager anticipation, just like Paul said, it's the blessed hope. But I was a little confused by his use of that term. No, I, I agree with you 100%. He does seem to contradict himself a number of times throughout this book. In fact, I feel like if if we went back through it, really looking for contradictions, we could point out quite a number of them. But Nevertheless, that's not the point. We're trying to just simply show the inconsistencies scripturally from this book, not his inconsistencies with himself. So I hope we've been able to do that. Do you have anything else on these chapters that we've looked at? Nope. I know there's a lot more that could be said. Uh, I would always encourage anyone to just simply read it. We are going to, tr we finished the, the actual book itself, but there are some appendices that we are going to try and deal with the next time. That'll be our last podcast. So we are signing off for today. This is just Jerry live and Lord willing. We will see you next time. Well, maybe just a clarification. That's right. not our last podcast of all time. That's just the, the last podcast on this book. Absolutely. And, and, uh, it, 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 there is a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Have a great day.